Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. Welcome back to part two of our conversation. Here's your host, Brian Brodeur. So you were talking about artists and how they made money. And of course, you dropped the name of the Beatles. Now, the Beatles are near and dear to my heart. When I was young, I understood who George Martin was and how he was not a member of the Beatles, but how important he was as the producer of the Beatles. And of course, working with people like Jeff Emmerich, Beatles engineered at EMI Abbey Road. I wanted to bounce off this idea. I would like your comment on the Beatles among some other acts, but certainly the Beatles as the primary example, were artists who were writing their own songs and how that was so different from, say, an artist like Elvis Presley, how the record industry came from the 40s to the 50s and then into the 60s with the British explosion, but generally the explosion of artists writing their own songs. And that certainly is the example of the 60s in general, and we could name any number of acts. That connection, I would like your thoughts on that connection to how songwriters and royalties changed for artists, because that is still a young person's view of they consume an artist, whether it's online, on YouTube, on a download on iTunes, on TV, whatever it is, they're consuming that piece of art. And a young person's view of who that artist is. These days, you could say, all right, Taylor Swift. Well, she's known for writing a lot of her material. There's people like Katy Perry, who may be credited in some songwriting, but certainly is getting a lot of songwriting help. Beyonce, a huge list of songwriters on those credits. But then you go back to somebody like Lennon and McCartney, and it was that perfect match of their vocals together, their songwriting duo. Can I have you give me your thoughts on all of that in a way, and particularly going back to the Beatles and how they changed the business? There is still and has been for many years a role called the producer. The producer, back in the old days, you might want to reference George Martin with the Beatles, Andrew Lugold with the Rolling Stones, who, although he didn't have much technical expertise, certainly knew music and knew what sold. And Bill Spector, we could throw his name in on this as well. And what they did was tailor the final product with a set of clean ears, so to speak, and no preconceived notions. And what they did was they honed the work. They made it a polished, finished product that could be sold and would be commercial. When you're sitting all by yourself in your home recording studio, with your microphone and your guitar or keyboard, you don't necessarily have the services of somebody who is impartial 
doesn't get caught up in uh, the band politics, hopefully, too much, and can provide you with a unbiased additional set of ears that might have a bigger vision of what the project could be. Back in the days before artists were writing their own material, there was a specialized fellow who was called the A&R Man who brought a bunch of songs in for the artist to consider recording. Elvis Presley recorded mostly songs written by other people. The Beatles, Chuck Berry, uh, Buddy Holly, were groundbreakers in that they wrote their own songs and used producers to bring out the best in them. And these days, producers have taken on an additional job in that they also write the songs. So you might have somebody coming in who has an idea for a song, but a producer might change it to such a degree that the producer will also have uh, songwriting credit for it because he contributed in a substantial way to the way the song finally comes out, well above and beyond what George Martin did. So today, having an impartial ear and a vision of where you want the music to go is very important, and in the way that producers work on the songwriting end of things, mastering engineers would serve a similar purpose on the sonic end of things. The mastering engineer is not going to suggest rewriting the song necessarily, but can provide an impartial expert ear with knowledge of what will succeed in the marketplace and be able to offer advice sonically that will improve the song and make it more saleable and more attractive to the listening audience. On that topic, I have a very specific question that just occurred to me, and I didn't want to leave it to later to ask. This is a mastering-centric question. Can you tell me, as a mastering engineer, if an artist comes in with his final mixes and you listen to them and prepare to master them, is there ever the case that the mastering engineer, you specifically, but any mastering engineer, would essentially send the mix back for a remix? I get asked all the time by clients, is my mix ready for mastering? And this is especially true with people who have not done this very often before. It might be their first project. It might be their fifth project. And it's because they're not working with a producer who can impartially listen to what they've got, offer suggestions if necessary, and make it sound better. So it comes down to asking the mastering engineer to provide some of those services as well. We're being asked to offer creative advice in terms of the way the song sounds and the arrangement and the mix and whether the vocals are good and do I really need that guitar in there or what have you. And generally, I listen to everything carefully before I go ahead and start altering things if necessary. Some projects are so well done that I just have to do a little touch up here and there and they're ready to go. But I assume that unless there are some sonic anomalies that are obvious, that this is pretty close to what the artist wants the final project to sound like. I can gently ask a question or two regarding specifics, like, are you really sure you want that much low bottom on this, or do you really want the vocals to be buried under the guitars in this particular chorus or verse? You know, and you can ask questions that might open up the field to other questions, but 
I'm not here to rewrite the songs, and I'm not here to change the artist's vision of the music and the way it's arranged and the way it's presented. I'm here to make the best-sounding final product that can be made given what I have to work with. If there's something that's drastically wrong, I'll ask about it. Plus, I don't want somebody to go out there and fall flat on their faces if, if I can do anything to help them. But it's up to the artists at this point if they're not using a producer or if they don't have somebody who's impartial and can listen to it with knowledgeable ears. It's not necessarily to me to change things around. I'm just here to perfect, not to alter. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. Visit jlc-accounting.com. And by Tap Into TV, original video programming covering topics of interest in New Jersey, New York, and beyond. Visit tapintotv.net. This week, the news broke that the legendary Avatar, formerly Power Station, recording studio is up for sale. It's clear, unless you've been living under a rock, that most of the major historic studios in New York City, never mind the world, but New York certainly was the recording capital of the world for a long time, many of those studios are gone and they won't be back. And that includes Hit Factory, that includes Sony Studios, the old RCA Studios, even my mentor Harry Hirsch's facilities such as Media Sound, where Stevie Wonder did Intervisions. You could name a dozen others, too. There's only a handful of, quote, major facilities that are still afloat in New York. So I'd like your thoughts about how the studio community, the studio industry, recording studio environments, have diminished and how they've, obviously, more people are doing things in their bedrooms, but even professional facilities have become smaller. And I want to leave the obvious things off the table. I would like you to speak to the intangibles. The obvious things are, well, guess what? I don't need a two-inch tape machine that is the size of a refrigerator. I'm sitting here talking to you, and my CPU is six inches by six inches. And I have a micro keyboard, and I have a preamp that is also six inches by six inches. The Lunchbox series equipment has put any number of sonic processing devices into a small footprint. I have two large visual monitors for my recording environment, but the room I'm in, and it's sonically treated, but I'm in a 15 by 12 room, and this is my reality and the reality of many other facilities that their footprint has become smaller. I'd like your thoughts on that. What it used to be and the incredible product that came out of these larger facilities, but the industry has downsized. Well, I think that the downsizing of the industry is something of a reflection of the public's lack of obvious interest in quality of sound. People have gone for convenience rather than ultimate sonic quality, and it's a real shame because as time goes on, bigger studios or studios with perhaps higher budgets for equipment purchases have been able to make astounding, beautiful-sounding recordings. 
But if your final product is going to be an MP3 to be played on earbuds, which is, I certainly understand the way people have voted with their dollars to listen primarily that way rather than have a dedicated home stereo with speakers that are as tall as a child. And rather than that, you listen on earbuds and you might not get the sonic quality that you were getting before. I actually believe that it's going to come around again. And I truly hope that quality will once again win out because there's so much quality to be had. There are folks like Neil Young who has come up with this Pono digital interface, which increases the sound quality and makes things sound truer to life than uh, your basic MP3. And there are other things like that that are out there on the market. People have got to be educated, and it's up to people who I guess haven't been doing such a great job of interesting people in getting the best sound for their dollar rather than getting the most convenience for their dollar. I would also like to touch on the spiritual or the aesthetic, creative experience of a studio environment. I've always been fascinated with that. When I would see pictures of the Beatles in Studio Two at Abbey Road, this giant room and George Martin looking down on them from the from the control room way up above. From Just above, like a god. Fascinating stuff. And you know, okay, if the economy doesn't allow for a company, and of course I feel like I'm in these shoes, but let's say anybody, you know, I can't have 2,500 square feet of recording space. I don't have that business, and I don't foresee that business coming to me anytime soon. But I want that experience for my clients. I still feel there's a better product that comes out of a creative, supportive studio environment. I think just basically it comes down to the professionalism again, and we can compensate for the lack of the 2,500 square foot recording room in that we have people who know what a 2,500 square foot recording room sounds like and can approach it, if not duplicate it, using the quality tools that we have at our disposal and know how to use. Right. So as we finish up, I would love a listening list. Obviously, there's lots of great things you've done and are worth listening to. But even something like, you know, a teenage kid comes in and we sit him down and say, you have to listen to this. And why? And maybe there's a handful of recordings like, oh, you need to hear this because this was done with two microphones in this beautiful sounding room. And it was mastered by blank. And this is a beautiful piece of art. Because people don't get to ever hear that from someone with the experience and ears like that you have. Okay, I can come up with a bunch of them. Also, the, the question is, can I give you LP versus CD? In other words, for example, I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure that my vinyl cut of Brian Wilson's Smile Project absolutely blows away the CD that Ludwig did. I've done side-by-side -side comparisons, and I even had an AES meeting with, you know, a whole bunch of engineers coming in, and everybody agreed. I'm not sure if we want to get into those kinds of differences or not. Well, the answer is yes. It's funny that you mentioned AES, but with the general consumer, and this happens here a lot, you will often hear this thing of like, well, you know, vinyl's making a comeback. And that comes from people walking into Barnes & Noble and seeing these sort of boutique re-releases of vinyl. Yeah. 
And of course, they're also trying to sell the $69 turntable with a USB port. So, Lord help us. Right. And so we have to have that conversation. You and I have to talk about that and sort of clear the air. I'm going to give you, in my list of must-listen-to products, some of them are going to be out of print and some of them are going to be fairly esoteric. That's fine. Okay. Well, this is awesome. And we're going to end now, but I actually want to follow up later and we'll talk about, you know, a young person today who's a songwriter, they don't understand what it means to go into a studio and have three tracks. And you got, you know, an afternoon of takes. (laughs) And moving a microphone three feet to the left is going to give the horns a different balance against the drummer. So we'll talk about some of that stuff that just nobody ever, ever deals with now because they're going in their recording system that I'm staring at right now. I'm looking at one. And they can dial up tracks to make choices and they have a b3 sample that you know it's not a real b3 but it's quote acceptable and they just dial it up and if they don't like that they change it it's all malleable you know it's all completely flexible and those original days are not the commonplace so that's stuff we'll talk about so let's not as we say in my house let's not dilly dally let's get you back on the horn here Okay, I'll put it into my calendar so nothing else goes there. Good. Thanks, boss. All right. Speak to you later. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to audio engineer J.P. Conk and senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thanks for listening.